why do we need 83 services? Imagine if you took that funding and gave it to community. But there's this view of everybody that they can do it better externally and flying in doing it better. Get out of the way and let us do it ourselves. This is Listen, Learn, Respect, a podcast by the National Apology Foundation, coming to you from River City Studios in Mianjin, Brisbane, home of the Turrbal and Yuggera people. My name is Jessica Rudd, and I'm co-chair of the foundation. Thanks for joining us. Children are not overrepresented in the child protection system, is the closing the gap target number 12. By 2031, the rate of overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in out-of-home care is aimed to be reduced by 45%. On this episode, we are joined by one of Australia's leading experts on Aboriginal child welfare, the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, VACA, and Chair of the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Child Care, Yorta Yorta and Jajawarung woman, Muriel Bamblett AO. Muriel is currently active in more than 30 advisory groups concerning the Aboriginal community. Thank you so much for being part of Listen, Learn, Respect, Muriel. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so you've been CEO at VACA since I was in grade 11 and I turned 40 at the end of the year. How on earth have you done that? That's amazing. Yeah, 23 years, I think. Um, look, and I mean, I, I, you know, started my career, um, sort of my passion for child welfare when I was working in Brisbane. Um, I worked for Social Security um, at that time, which is now obviously not Social Security anymore, but um, it was. I was working with women in Musgrave Park. I was working um, very closely with people that, um, you know, child protection with a lot of systems and working with a lot of people that um, I felt that there was you know, something that I could do better. And so when I came back to Victoria, I was employed in Telstra, so helping people get jobs. And and that was, I was really passionate about that as well. And so I was able to see 300 people placed within jobs. And it was really great to see what I was doing. But I went to a community meeting about child protection and it really sort of came, came to me that it was something that I could really sort of, you know, get involved in and, and do something for uh, particularly the most vulnerable in our communities. Because at that time, we had so many children in care. We were so underfunded by the government. There were just so many issues that we had to, uh, you know, resolve. Yeah. Talk to me about how VACA started and what, what work it does. Look, VACA started over 46 years ago, nearly 47 um, and it was through Annie Molly Dyer. And so Annie Molly Dyer was at the time working at the Aboriginal Legal Service. And she was seeing a number of young people that were coming through the justice system that a history of child protection. But what was most alarming is often these children were placed with non-Aboriginal carers and were coming to her and asking her if she could help them find their family. And so she was really struck by the relationship between child protection, juvenile justice, criminal justice, but also the the, the lack of or, or the, you know, view that children didn't have a connection with their Aboriginal family and so she was finding family for them and so she started to do the work to establish an Aboriginal organisation that could work with the government around preventing Aboriginal children from going into care. I don't think she was to ever know 
um, how significant that would, would be because that was the impetus for getting Aboriginal and Child and Family Welfare all over Australia. So she went to the first adoption conference. She spoke about the numbers of Aboriginal children and the huge scale removal of Aboriginal children and implored at that conference for something to be done about it. I think, you know, um, today it's really important to acknowledge, obviously, you know, the work of your father in bringing about, you know, the apology. And so it was actually Snake um, that called for, and I'm chair of Snake, the National Voice for Children. It was actually Snake's um, advocacy and, and calling for the Royal Commission into, into the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, which the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission held. And so, you know, Patrick Dodson, amazing people that went out and consulted but I think a lot of those 54 recommendations have never been implemented so being involved in VACA means that if you look at those 54 recommendations we've actually been able to achieve many of those recommendations just by doing good work in child welfare and so a lot of the things that I've seen um, is when we first started we had so many children that were in care that didn't have proper care, that we, we didn't have quality, we didn't have accreditation. The department didn't like us, the community didn't like us. Um, it was a really terrible time in child welfare. Today, we, we've turned it on its head. We're actually getting really great outcomes. We've got now in Victoria over a thousand staff working in the sector. So um, we deliver family violence, we deliver justice, we deliver early education, we deliver digital support, we provide so many resources and support. And as you can hear from what I'm talking about, a lot of the issues that contribute to our people being overrepresented in child protection is poverty. And so a lot of the outcomes that we've been able to get for children is really about um, making them more safe, but working with parents to get children back home and to keep them home. Um, we do a lot of work around cultural support. So um, for all of our Aboriginal children, they have genealogies, they have confirmation of Aboriginality, they do return to country. There's cultural support planning because we've had, you know, numerous generations of systems that have stripped away many of our Aboriginal children's identity. And so a lot of our work today is about restoring and rebalancing and putting back into children a sense of who they are. How do you think we're going to get to target number 12 and on closing the gap? Do you think we're going to achieve it? Uh, is it is it possible? Look, I don't think you can, you know, solve an intractable problem overnight. But I, you know, like we, we just have had so many discussions because we've got a Premier in Victoria that's committed to reform and he's basically, you know, we've got the Uruk truth-telling where we were hammered about child protection and the overrepresentation. And, you know, to put on record, Victoria has the over, highest overrepresentation, probably the biggest investment. And But some of the things that um, people don't understand is, like, I sign off, I've signed off about a 1,000 cultural support plans over the last couple of years. Of those, about almost 500 are for children not from Victoria. We're dealing with children, a lot of children that have been bought, generations of um, children that, you know, whose grandparents were removed and brought to Victoria. So majority Tasmanian, 
not a lot, a lot from New South Wales, but a, and not a lot from Queensland, but an awful lot from Western Australia, Northern Territory, and South Australia from the APY land. So you can understand um, a lot of children were removed, historically removed, and brought to Victoria because at that time there was a view that Victoria could sustain many of these children that were removed. And so we're seeing generations of children that have been removed that we have to deal with. So we don't have the natural infrastructure of family and community, kinship carers that, you know, to be able to work with. So some of these problems are intractable, but some of the issues around family violence, we know in Victoria, 88% of children come into care because of family violence. But a lot of those things relate to drug and alcohol, mental health. And so being able to address all of those issues, what we're seeing, the biggest thing that we've been able to change is to take on Aboriginal guardianship of Aboriginal children. At the moment, I have um, I have 800 children that I care for on a daily basis. Um, at the moment, we have 200 children that are on guardianship to me. And so I am the guardian. I make all decisions. We are now moving into taking on the whole of child protection, so investigations as well. And so what we're hoping for is that we have the capacity to make sure that um, we do everything to keep children at home. And what we're finding is when a child on a long, that's been on a long-term order for over two years, it, you do a high five when one goes home. What we're finding is our reunification rate is up to 24% and the department is 12%. So that means they're highly unlikely to get children home and we've got a much higher success rate. Why is keeping Indigenous kids with Indigenous family so important? Can you help us understand that? Look, I mean, I think a lot of research has been done and we see that, um, like, a two-year-old doesn't care about their culture or anything, you know, a boomerang's a boomerang, you smash it on the floor, you make a lot of noise with it. But um, from our experience, I mean, it builds resilience. Children need to know who they are. Aboriginal people communicate by knowing who they are. As soon as we work up to another Aboriginal person, who's your mob, where you're from, and even our way of communicating is very much informed by who we are and where we come from. And what our research demonstrates that, you know, by seven or eight, children start to see that they're different if they don't understand and value who they are and have Aboriginal role models and leaders. And, and, and if you start to look at a lot of the negative media about Aboriginal people, we're dirty, black, lazy, all of these horrible things that are said about Aboriginal and people call us bongs, and, you know, all these terrible language that people use. Children grow up hearing that. You know, what we find is that young people that aren't absorbed or know who they are and are, you know, involved in their Aboriginal community grow up with a sense of disconnection. Um, many children that um, grow up outside of the Aboriginal community then end up in juvenile justice. And a lot of the work that we've been do we do with young people that are in the justice system is we find that these young people don't know who they are, have no sense of connection, and a lot of the work that we have to do is to get them back into community. So I'll just give you one example. We had a young boy that we were working with in the East and we have cultural support workers. And so this young fella was conflicted about who he was. And anyway, the worker was taking him down to Framlingham and Framlingham's an Aboriginal mission in the west of Melbourne. And this young person, all the way in the car down there, um, the worker said he was driving me insane he kept talking about them and they and like we were from another planet as aboriginal people 
And when he got to Framlingham, he said to this young fellow, take off your shoes, I want you to feel your country. This is where your people came from. He introduced him to an Aboriginal elder who took him around and showed him all of the significant um, families that lived there, what their contribution were, and he talked about the significance of land, country, culture. It was interesting on the way back, to cut a long story short, that young person, he turned around and he said, my country, and his whole sense of connection changed. And I think that people don't understand the connect, the importance of connection to culture and what that means to us as Aboriginal people. If you, in all your experience, if, if you had the full attention, devoted attention of non-Indigenous Australians for five minutes, what would you tell them to help them understand the work that you do, why you do it, and the difference that it makes? Yeah, it's, that's always the perennial issue is to... You know, do you appeal to their sense of justice? Do you appeal to their sense of what's right? Do you appeal to the fact that um, there is institutional racism and there's bias and, and there's so much inequity and there's so much injustice and understanding that Aboriginal people can do it better and often do do it better. Like we, I run an organisation where we're doing child welfare and why do we let child protection still run systems to protect children when they're a system. They're not a parent. Their day-to-day -day job is not to care for children. They don't have the same passion about children and families, about connecting, about and, and understanding importance. So I think mainstream have got to a stage where they um, think they can do better, they think they can help us, but they're not helping us. By not, you know, giving back to communities, empowering communities to to take this work on, to do the work. I'll give you an example. In Tiwi Island, when we were doing the inquiry, and the situation hasn't changed, 83 services fly in a month to Tiwi Island to deliver all sorts of justice, family violence, child protection, the whole raft of services. Why, why do we need 83 services? Imagine if you took that funding and gave it to community and come up, ask communities. But there's this view of everybody that they can do it better externally and flying in doing it better. And so I think that's about disempowering communities. And, and now they find that Aboriginal people in, in those communities don't want to do the basics because, um, you know, there's, there's this belief that, other people will do it for us. Get out of the way and let us do it ourselves. You know, stop hindering us and empower us. And so a lot of people are quite forthright. And, you know, you will hear in the media about the detractors. The more you move to, to helping yourself, there's a view that the less you are Aboriginal. And so there's this terrible debate that happens in Australia that if I stand up as a politician, um, then I'm not Aboriginal anymore or I'm not as much of an Aboriginal because I'm not wearing traditional um, gear and, and performing dance and singing and music and all of that, doing art and doing the things that are Aboriginal. And so th there are the perennial challenges that happen for Aboriginal people when they do step up and start to, you know, really sort of challenge the systems that hold us back.
Can you tell us about Snake, how it started and uh, what its journey is today? I've been involved with Snake on and off for over 20 years. And so, um, as I said, only Molly Dyer started the first um, Aboriginal childcare agency in Victoria. And Snake was to, you know, started out of the passion of a couple of people, Brian Butler and Nigel D'Souza. And so they were in a tiny little office um, in Smith Street, um, granted to them by another Aboriginal community controlled organisation. And so they lobbied with the Commonwealth Government to get um, funding for Aboriginal child and family welfare. And as you know, normally child and family welfare is the jurisdiction of the states and territories, but at the time it was taken to the Commonwealth. I think historically because of the Commonwealth's role in removing so many children and taking them from missions and reserves and putting them in institutions. So it seemed, um, and there was at that time, a minister within the government that actually committed to funding Aboriginal community-controlled Aboriginal organisations. So it started from a very small number of organisations with very small buckets of funding, you know, not even 100,000. And we saw the emergence of many of the Aboriginal services that, you know, across legal, across justice, across family violence. Uh, And and you can see that, you know, a lot of those organisations still exist today. But I think it's really important to recognise what, how those organisations were established, but how they also contributed to the growth in child welfare. And so there were very, at the time, very, very, um, a number of very passionate Ab- Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that established Aboriginal community controlled organisations. What you're describing is a raft of organisations that do the work of government for and on behalf of government. Yeah. Do you find it frustrating, overwhelming, knowing that the number of words that are being churned out by government um, do not match in any way the effort that is put in on the ground um, by these frontline community organisations that are delivering service. Yes, you're absolutely right, Jess, because um, what we see is organisations that give a footprint to Aboriginal people. They actually um, keep, you know, really sort of service often the most at risk they service the most vulnerable and they provide an Aboriginal footprint and an Aboriginal way of networking or socialising. The work that they do around yarning circles, the work they do around camps, around supporting football, netball carnivals, um, these are the things that um, are really critical. If we didn't have local Aboriginal community-controlled organisations doing that work, Many people would never see our Aboriginal community. They wouldn't know we exist. A lot of them do it so silently. They don't, you know, go out and seek media and attention. They, they just get about doing the job, about servicing the health needs, the justice needs, the, you know, the, working with the schools and working with mainstream organisations. And so they don't get a lot of the accolades for the great work they do on the ground. Yeah. In the early childhood education and care space, what can we learn from countries like Canada and New Zealand in terms of delivery of services? Yeah, look, I think Canada's a really useful experience. I mean, we've looked at Canada, we've looked at the United States and we've looked, obviously, at New Zealand as well. And um, those countries, you know, have got treaties and so they've got agreements. So um, in Victoria, we've 
you know, we've got the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria and so we negotiated treaty and I know that Queensland's entering into a treaty arrangement. We know that NT's talking about it. I think South Australia's sort of debating it at the moment. But um, to me, treaties provide to me, um, the ability to negotiate differently. We've got so many agreements in Victoria that um, pr make promise, so many plans um, that are made and all these things are full, are full of broken promises, broken commitments. From our point of view, um, it, it is about, I mean, the National Agreement on Close the Gap is probably the most binding agreement we've ever had. The full reform areas within it around shared decision making, about investment and Aboriginal community control, about mainstream um, accountability and mainstream, you know, sort of service delivery, and also about data, other uh, full reform. And, and to me, elements of the national agreement are really challenging us about better working relationships. But really, over the top of the targets, we can't achieve any of the targets without all the rest of the binding agreement. And so um, some of the things that we are seeing, and particularly for SNAPE, is, you know, um, we now have a national plan of action for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. We have an early years plan. And we now sit in the room with ministers. Many years ago, we never could get a, even a meeting with ministers or secretaries or senior bureaucrats. Now we're in the room. And so these all go to the, you know, the issue of having Aboriginal people in decision-making, having binding agreements and being able to really sort of take up to government. The, it, it's a combination of a lot of the things, having all of the commitment from government, the agreements, but also having Aboriginal people that are prepared to take solutions and approaches that work and being able to challenge systems, but being able to answer back to your community that we're not selling our Aboriginality or our, who we are in order to take up a new model of um, servicing our people. And so I think it's really important that we are seen to have integrity across all of our people and all of the systems that we work within. You work actively in over 30 advisory groups concerning the Aboriginal community. That's a massive workload. What gives you that drive? What, what, is the, what is the hope that inspires you to do that every day? Look, I think, um, I think my life and everybody's lives are an evolving journey. We learn more and the more you learn, the more you want to learn. And, you know, sometimes you've got to be careful that you don't get arrogant about it. I, I know, I know the answer. I know everything. I'm going to solve all the problems of the world. So you've got to really hold yourself back. But I, I like systems. I like changing systems. I, I mean, I work in an organisation where I have, a, you know, a lot of responsibility, a lot of compliance. So I have to really make sure that my organisation is the best. But I employ, I, I, I love dedicated people. I love um, having loyal people and people that are committed around me. And, I, you know, and I think I've really got that. But I think what drives me is... Um, I love strategic, I love looking at strategies and looking at opportunities to change. And so I've been really involved in the um, developing the National Action Plan on DV sexual assault and family violence. And so I've, you know, travelled across this nation of ours and I've heard terrible stories about what, what our communities have to deal with. And so I try to step outside of listening to the problems looking at the solutions and looking at what the evidence does and so I'm sorry but I'm a, I'm a nerd for looking at solutions 
I get a bit frustrated with some of the forums I go to there, you know, if they're not moving. I think my starting point was that I've learned so much from elders, from other people's voices. I think a lot of people go into rooms and don't listen and don't hear and don't pick up the expertise like elders' voices over the years, have, you know, shared messages. My mum, you know, was told, when, and she used to say to me when I was a little girl, I heard Annie Eleanor Harding. She came to a room and she said to us, all these Aboriginal women in the room, you women need to go home and make sure your kids get an education because we need to take the white man's education up to him. We need as Aboriginal people sitting at the table and putting our our education in the room. I've, I've come through an era where, you know, there was Pastor Doug Nichols, Bruce McGinnis, Nick Foley, you know, all of these people that have contributed so much. I mean, I knew Mick Miller. I knew all of these people that have contributed so much. I worked with Mick Gooder in Social Security, would you believe? We started our early days. So, um, yeah, I've worked with Linda Burney, Tom Carmel, Jackie Huggins, Jackie Huggins, amazing woman. I remember something she said, and it stuck in my mind for many years because they were talking at, at a conference, a women's conference in Queensland, and they were talking about abolishing the ab study. The program provides money for costs like rent assistance and tutorial help for those at university, TAFE, or doing an apprenticeship. And that was a you know, a tiny little check that went to Aboriginal children. And Jackie was really fighting because someone in the room said, well, why, why should they get it? And it should be means tested. And Jackie got up and she pointed to her skin and she said, we paid for ab study with the colour of our skin. What we need to acknowledge is that we as Aboriginal people have rights in this country. So it was really stuck with me forever. And the way she pointed to her skin, we paid for what we get from government with the colour of her skin. She's an extraordinary leader and I'm I'm very honoured to be working alongside her in this role. Yeah, she's a good woman. I won't tell you about her 50th birthday that I went to. <laughs> <laughs> well, Muriel Bamblett, I'm extraordinarily grateful uh, as an Australian for all the work that you do. Um, your life's work is vital, it is critical and it has supported so many people. Um, and uh, and it is ongoing. So thank you, and thank you for joining us here on Listen, Learn, Respect. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can follow Listen, Learn, Respect in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the National Apology Foundation, thanks for joining us.